you turn with me to John chapter 6, we're going to jump around a little bit in this chapter. It's one of the longest chapters in the Bible. We're going to read a portion of it together today. This actually is perhaps one of the most, if not the most hectic day of Jesus' life and ministry. Um, It's a very, very long day. He has incredible highs and lows throughout the day. And it's capped, it's, uh, it's capped off, at least the day portion of it is capped off with this episode or narrative. The most hectic day next to him being crucified on the cross. Uh, John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. I'm going to read 1 to 15. We're going to skip over to verses 25 to 35. And then I'm going to read from 36 to 51. The words in your bulletin are very, very small. Those are the ones that I found I'm going to focus on less And the ones that are a little larger are the ones I'm going to focus on a little bit more, okay? Some time after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled the twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. I'm going to skip over to verse 25. When he found them on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You were looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign will you, will you, then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus said, declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at that last day. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at that last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the man in the desert, yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And that's God's word. There's a famous passage. The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. 
probably more than 5,000 because back then they didn't count women. They didn't count children. Now the miracles in John chapters 2 and 4 and 5, they were all done in a private place. They were all done among a smaller, a relatively smaller group of people. But this was done in the full view of the public. The miracles performed in a public place. Why? Why was it done in a public place? This lesson was intended for everyone. Whether you grew up in a church, never been inside a church before, the author here wants everyone to know the significance of this miracle. And incidentally, this is the only miracle that's printed in all four of the Gospels. So it's an interesting thing in this book of John. You have a miracle always presented, and it always precedes or follows a teaching about the miracle. In other words, the miracle never stands alone. It never stands by itself. So what's the lesson here? Jesus is sufficient where there's insufficiency. Jesus is utterly potent where there's no potential. Jesus is the way. He is the option when there doesn't seem like there's any other options. He deems significant people who seem to be insignificant. And in John chapter 6, verse 35 and 41 and 48 and 51, he makes a claim. He says, I am the bread of life. In other words, if you, if you go without bread, what happens? You go hungry. You go hungry. You, go, you, you die of hunger. Your body starts to slowly waste away. How long can you sustain your life without food, without bread? In other words, if you starve, you become deprived of the very things that give you energy, the very things that give, that give you power and strength. How do you sustain your life without bread? Life just comes, comes and goes. So, in other words, a claim about eternity. John chapter 6, verse 44 and 47, he says, you know, I, I will give them everlasting life. I will raise them up at the last day. Anyone who makes that kind of claim, you have to take him seriously. Why? Because if he's false, then you know you can reject him completely. Not just a portion of what he says, but everything. But if what he's saying is true, then that life is for you. It's life and death. It's important. Three lessons, very quick lessons. We'll actually try as best to be as quick as possible about this. The what, the why, and the how. The what, that's the miracle. The why, that's the teaching about the miracle. The how, how do you apply? How do you eat this bread? First, the what. You see this in verses 1 to 15. 5,000 people. What does it demonstrate? It demonstrates the power of God. The power of God. He can use an insignificant child, a pauper's boy, to do the work of feeding the miracle. He can, see, he can take a seemingly impossible situation, an insufficient situation with insufficient means, and become utterly sufficient, utterly sufficient to feed his people, to care for his people. It was barley bread that was used. Barley bread it was traditionally the food for horses. That's what this boy brought. And yet he takes it and he turns it into a feast. What does this tell you? Your wealth, your looks, your figure, your status, your salary, what you own, the neighborhood you live in, the size of your home, these things do not matter. You can't bring any of these things to the table to gain the approval of God, to be sufficiently filled by God, even though you think that it'll fill you. In the Old Testament, God provided bread for his people. How did he provide for his people? He gave them manna. He gave them manna in the wilderness. Now, what's a desert? A desert's a barren place. The wilderness is a barren place. It's a place where you can't sustain life. You can't, you can't hold life there. You can't grow there. There's no life there. Nothing can be sustained. And yet there in the wilderness, God provided manna for his people to eat. Manna is this kind of fine, flaky uh, type of bread that you ground up and you turn it into cakes that you would kind of make in oil. And it tasted like honey. So God provided this manna where there was just complete insufficiency. And the prophets since those days, they had taught and they had prophesied that one who would come from heaven to give us bread from heaven. That's what the prophets said. In fact, they said, in those days, the Messiah will appear and feed them from bread with bread from on high. Hundreds of years later, again in a wilderness, 5,000 people, here's Jesus providing bread, a new manna, the bread from heaven to his people, the power of God. It, Jesus, he doesn't make a name for himself. He doesn't say, stand back, 
I'm about to do something amazing. Just watch. That's not what he does. He doesn't utter some secret, you know, poem or something like that to invoke God's power. Instead, he prays. He has the same resources that you and I have. He prays. And what, what happens? People are fed sufficiently. Instead of making a name for himself, he involves other people. He tells the disciples, feed them. The disciples say, we can't. He takes this boy's lunch, this poor boy's lunch, and he uses it to feed people, to show them his power. He wants you to know his power. He wants you to know, not just to know about his power, he wants to know that God's power is working through you and in you. The disciples, they just got back from performing all these miracles. It was part of the hectic nature of Jesus' day. He hadn't seen them in days. They just got back from performing miracles. But as soon as they saw the crowd, what happened? They were overwhelmed, completely overwhelmed by their circumstances. They were drowning in their circumstances. They got indignant. Eight months' wages, they were getting sarcastic. They didn't see the options. They didn't see the potential. Jesus, he uses this pauper boy's lunch. They didn't get it. But he feeds the multitude. Are you feeling weak? Times in your life where you feel that there's no power in your life? Where you feel inadequate, completely inadequate? Take heart. This is about Jesus priming us. What he does is he takes us in our weakness. He takes us in these times in our lives when we don't have power, when we feel like there's no power. What's he doing? He's preparing you. He's priming you so that you can see that God's power is so much greater than your circumstance, so much greater than your time of need, so much greater than your place where you are right now, and he's working in you, and he's preparing to work through you. We come to church, and we begin, uh, you know, we try to start our week off straight. That's what we do when we come to church. And we failed all week, we feel guilty because we failed. We haven't prayed all week, we feel guilty because we haven't prayed. We haven't read the Bible since Sunday. We feel guilty because we haven't read our Bibles. So we come for just enough inspiration, just enough motivation to last us through until next Sunday. We're not relying on Jesus as manna. We're not relying on him as the bread of life. Christ came so that you would know his power, so that you would feed on his power. He came so that you could feel his pleasure in your work. He came so that you would know his pleasure in your circumstances, in your day. How do you begin to know this? How do you begin to see this and and know that God is actually working in your life? You begin to see this because you start to experience that God's grace is a lot more abundant than you realized at one point. He's more than enough. In the Old Testament, there was never any leftovers. God gave you just enough manna to last for a day. He said, in fact, he tells you, he told the Israelites, don't store it up. You're going to get just enough for the day. His provision was just enough. So whenever they tried to store it up for themselves, what would happen? Worms and the smell because the manna would rot after a day. Here, 12 bushes left over, 12 baskets. It started out with five loaves, turned into 12 baskets left over. Whenever you see the number 12, it represents the church. In other words, what he's saying is it's not just enough for them. They had their fill. It's enough for the whole of the church. You are invited to the table. The moment you begin in your weakness to see, wow, God's grace is abundant in my life. This is amazing. I'm starting to sense that even in my sin, God's grace is greater than that sin. He's more abundant. Even in my weakness, God's power is amazingly abundant for my, in my circumstance. That's when you start to sense and know who God is. More than enough, I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 1. Chapter 1. Verse 17 to 21. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul. It's in a time of weakness. He's in jail. He's nearing the end of his life. And in jail, he prays for the Ephesians. Here's his prayer. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. That's his prayer. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. God's grace is abundantly rich. He's saying it's it's so sufficient, it doesn't just carry you through one day and then run out. 
and then you've got to ask for more. It's abundant, even when you think you are at your lowest. So present, so abundant. If you're feeling inadequate, insufficient, look at the boy. Poor boy, he, he had a lunch. He was going to eat it for himself. It was taken away from him. Fed everybody. Amazingly rich, where it seems insufficient. There's no power in the lunch. There's no power in the boy. The boy had no particular status that we should look to and worship him. There's no power in the lunch itself that we would actually raise it up as an idol and worship it. How would you interpret the loaves otherwise? When you look at this miracle, what do you see? If you're holding on to things, it's like your lunch. If you're holding on to things, and you're saying, Jesus, I can't come to you. I will not come to you because I know that if I come to you, I have to address my lifestyle. I, 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 I got to stop sleeping around. I got to stop drinking like crazy. I got to stop doing this and start, start doing these other things. And I don't want to do that. What you're saying is, I'm willing to be filled for a little while because these things do fulfill me a little bit. But those things aren't going to last. And what happens is when those things stop to last, you start to corrode. Your body starts to waste away. Your soul, more importantly, starts to waste away. You corrode. What happens is, look at the boy. If he held on to that lunch and ate it for himself, everyone starves. It means our relationships hurt because of our corrosion. We've experienced that. Many of us, all of us, have experienced brokenness in our relationships, brokenness in our lives, in our families, in our workplace. Why? Because we're holding on to things, a quest for things, a pursuit for things that will not satisfy. Here's a quote from... Uh, about Gidi Mapasan, um, perhaps one of the greatest, he is actually the progenitor, the, the creator of the modern short story concept, the genre. One of my favorite writers. Within 10 years, he rose from obscurity to fame. His material possessions bespoke a life of affluence, a yacht in the Mediterranean, a large house in the Norman coast, a luxurious flat in Paris. It was said of him that critics praised him, men admired him, women worshipped him. Yet at the height of his fame, he went insane, a condition brought on, many believe, by a sexually transmitted disease. On New Year's Day in 1892, he tried to cut his throat with a letter opener, and he lived out the last weeks of his life in a private asylum on the French Riviera. After weeks and months of mindless utterances and debilitating pain, he died at the age of 42. The Mapassant penned his own epitaph. I coveted everything and taken pleasure in nothing. It doesn't matter how insufficient you feel, how inadequate you feel, how powerless you feel, Christ is going to use you. Do you see that? Christ is going to use you. There's abundant grace. There's abundant power. Uh, Surrender who you are. Surrender everything you have to Christ. God's power is going to save It's going to heal. It's going to restore. That's the power of God in our inadequacy. You have to be inadequate. That's the only requirement. You have to be inadequate. You have to say, I'm hungry. You have to say, I'm needy. Next is the why. That's the what. Here's the why. What's the teaching? The teaching is about satisfaction. Jesus says in verse 35 and verse 41, I am the bread of life, he says, the bread of heaven. What does that mean? In the Greek, there are two words for life. There's uh, one word which talks about existence, you know, work, rest, eating, sleeping. That points to bios. That's the Greek word, the bios life. In fact, most of the Bible, the word life um, is translated in the Greek word bios. So, you know, when you're trying to work to survive, that's bios. When you eat to live, that's bios. But there's another word, another Greek word for life, and that's called zoe. Zoe is a word that's very rarely used. It's used here in John chapter 6. It's used later on in John chapter 14. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. The word Zoe connotes something entirely different. Whereas bios is about your existence, Zoe is about the quality of your life. It's about sucking the marrow out of life. It's about your pleasure in life, your enjoyment, the deep, rich quality of your life. And so he's saying here that just as the body needs food, needs bread to live, that's bios, the soul needs Jesus for Zoe. The problem is we often don't go to Jesus for Zoe. We go for the things that serve our bios. 
we take our work, we take our rest, money, wealth, our status. These are the things that we look to to actually serve and give us a Zoe life, a deeper, richer quality of life. And Jesus is saying here that if you take the bread, it's going to fill you abundantly. You're never going to go hungry, he says. Verse 27, God the Father has placed a seal of approval on Jesus, and he's giving it to you. How is that going to shape you? He's saying that just as the body needs bread, your soul needs Jesus. He's referring to a life that's utterly dynamic. He's saying, if you take me in, if you take me in, if you swallow, if you eat of me, your life becomes utterly dynamic. Your life becomes incredibly rich, coherent, free. You're going to be satisfied, utterly satisfied. A life that's uh, that's as closest to what you were intended for, what you were created to be. How's that going to shape you? Take two people. Two people, two separate rooms, same job. Their job is mundane. Their job is to, every time they get a piece of paper, they have to stamp the paper, pass it on. That's all they do all day. They come in at nine, leave at five, they get a paper, stamp it, pass it on. The first guy, at the end of his year, he gets paid $10,000. The second guy, at the end of his year, he gets paid $10 million. How does the first guy feel compared to the second guy? Same job, same miserable existence. Yet outlooks are very, very different. The outlook is very, very different. Who has the fuller life? The truth of the gospel, as you are, It says, the gospel says, as you are, you are more sinful than you could ever imagine. And yet, as you are, God's grace is so much more sufficient, so much more abundant, so much more life-giving, so much more gracious than you ever hoped, than you ever dreamed, than you could ever imagine. This means if you've taken the bread, you've answered, you are already accepted. You are already accepted. You are already approved by God. It's going to give you boldness. That's going to give you dynamic life. It's going to give you richness. It should give you, that should be your source of dignity. That's what Jesus is saying. This is the reason why we should labor. And this is why when you labor, no matter the job, no matter the circumstances, this is why we labor joyfully. This is why Paul, in jail, can say, I rejoice. What's an idol? Otherwise, because it's going to be an idol. Everything else, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Everything else is a promise of Zoe. I am the Zoe, he says. I am the bread of life. You take me in, you will have richness and quality in your life. Everything else is a promise of Zoe, and it's going to fail you. Success, good marriage, status, power. A lot of us don't really care about power or success or status. You know, not every person's idol you can speak to is going to be the same as everybody else. Maybe to some degree. Some people, it's not power, but it's you want influence. Some people, it's not influence. You just want wealth. Some people, it's not wealth or influence. Those things are all a means to getting security in our lives. The Bible says that every one of these things become idols. What is an idol? An idol is another type of bread. It's what you're taking into your life, and you're saying, if I just have this thing, then I'll be full. Then I'll be satisfied. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. If you want life, if that's what you want, if you want a greater quality of life, every other promise makes you work and work and work and work. And you may feel temporary pleasure. You may feel temporary satisfaction, but it's going to come to an end. And your soul's going to corrode. And you're going to get bitter. And you're going to compare yourself with other people and how successful they are. And that's going to make you even more bitter. Your body's going to corrode. Your soul's going to corrode until death you part. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You have greater quality. You know, people indulge in these false Zoes. If you imagine a, a high-performance engine in a car, and you feel it with low-octane fuel, what happens? It was intended for coherence, and yet there's incoherence. It was intended for um, integration, you know, fine-tuned engine, and yet there's disintegration. It's intended for, like, consonance, and yet what you see and what you hear, you know, literally, the gears grind to a halt. Everything falls apart. Jesus says, I am the bread. Take this bread. When you take of it, where there is dissonance, now there's consonance. Where there is incoherence, 
there's coherence. Where there's um, disintegration, now there's integration. Where there's brokenness, it actually gets healed. There's healing. It's not static. It's dynamic. It's rich. When you come to Christ, you have a new father. You have a new royalty. It says, we're a royal priesthood. That's what the Bible says. That means you have new status. You have a new love. You know, Jesus says, I'm your lover. You have new options. You have new potential because the spirit, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is actually working and active and powerful in your own life. That's dynamic. That's incredibly dynamic. That's incredible power in your life. All the idols, all the false promises, the false Zoe's in our lives, they, they speak, they share, they're going to compel you and convince you, but it's going to cause you to lose yourself for them. You're not, you can actually lose yourself. The bread of life makes you find yourself. Why? Because that's when you discover your real potential. Jesus says, I'm going to send you to places you never wanted to go. You're going to go to places, that's real power. A power that you never thought you had. An adventurous life that you never thought you could experience. But all these other idols, everything else that you surround your life with, these are the things that will cause corrosion in your life. You actually lose yourself. You suffer disappointment, cosmic disappointment, because you thought this is the thing that's going to give me real life, and yet it doesn't. It disintegrates you. God provides manna, but the manna was only, they were only taught to store it up for days. But these people, of course, because they're worried about tomorrow, they want security. What do they do? They store it up, and it rots. It rots. The moment you take the quality of life, your pursuit of the quality of life in your own hands, what happens? That's when the dissonance comes in. That's when the disintegration comes in. And you're going to be left hungry, dissatisfied, looking for more. There's a, a movie, I wouldn't imagine if a lot of people here have seen it. It's called The Chariots of Fire. It was an Academy Award winning movie, best picture that year. I believe it was 1983 or 84. The story of two racers, a true story. Harold Abrams, Eric Liddell. One was a Christian. Eric Liddell was a Christian. And the whole drama focuses on him, but Harold Abrams is this man who is actually more talented And Harold Abrams, at the Olympics, he turns to his friend. He says, and now in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down the corridor, because he's a racer, he's a sprinter, four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. And later on, he turns to Aubrey and says, but will I? But will I? Aubrey. I've known the fear of losing, but now I am almost too frightened to win. That's what he says. No matter all the other Zoes, all the other promises of life in our lives, it renders you insecure. You're always going to feel insecure because you're still pursuing. You're taking the quality of life in your own hands. And to the extent that you're skilled, to the extent that you are better than others, you will feel good. You will feel satisfied. But there's always a point when the storm comes. That's why in between these two passages, between verse uh, 16 and, and 24 or 25, there's a storm. There's a huge storm. When the storm comes, you realize you've lost control. And you realize you never had any control. In the first place, you never had any control. That's the Zoe's. That's the life. Verse 32, 33. If you turn with me to verses 32 to 33. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to to the world. There's manna, then there's manna from heaven. Manna was good, but it doesn't satisfy. Manna was good, but it didn't sustain. It rotted after a day. It also spoiled So it didn't last. And if you held on to it, you would rot. You would taste and smell the rot. Christ's love lasts. Christ's love never corrodes. Verses 35 to 40, particularly verse 39, he says, I will raise them up in the last day. I will raise them up. They will be here. They'll have everlasting life. Look at the imagery. There's filling. You're going to be filled abundantly, he says. All who come to Christ will last to the end, he says. God's love is lasting. God's love is freeing. It's liberating. The bread oftentimes was at the presence of the holy place at the temple. 
That bread was only at the place, it was at the holy place. It was often called the bread of God. Only priests were allowed to eat of this bread. Here, what do you see? Everyone gets to eat. Everyone's invited to the table. Utterly liberating. No matter where you are, no matter where you've been, no matter who you see yourself to be, we're all invited. Everyone can eat. God's love is particularly for those who feel like they can't love him. It's particularly for those who believe that they're unlovable people. If you think about your sin, take a moment, look at your sin. Look at ourselves for a moment. We're poor. This passage is saying, no matter how rich you are, you're poor. No matter how good of a lunch you've had, we're hungry. We are in that multitude. We need a love that says, I love you because I love you. I love you because I accept you because I accept you. Before the foundation of the earth, before the foundation of the stars. To fill is to be satisfied in Christ. God's love outshines the stars. Why? Because he loved you before the stars were ever put into place. That's amazing. That's the fullness of God's love. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 3. He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. He says, my loving kindness, my loving kindness, I've drawn you into my loving kindness. That's a fullness. That word, that that Hebrew word, keseth, it's a transcendent love that actually is only attributed to God in the Bible because we can't have that kind of love even for our spouses or our children. Our love is always failing. Even for the people in our lives that we love the most, always failing. God says, I've loved you with loving kindness one that you can't even generate on your own. We want that. We need that. We need it. We need a standard. Someone who is on high, a measure that says, you are worthy. I love you. We're built that way. We're built for worship. We're always looking for that. That's why we're trying to find satisfaction in our spouses That's why we're trying to find satisfaction in the success of our children. If our children don't do well, we get angry, we get upset. We look at other people's children and think about how we imagine how satisfied they must be because they have such great children and we get so upset. Why? Because their success, their upbringing has meaning in our lives. Jesus says, take me in. I am the bread. I am your life. And if you take that in, it's never going to oppress you. It's never going to disappoint you. It's never going to corrode you. To be full is to be satisfied in Christ. We need that. And we got part of it right. We're built. We need someone outside of us validating us. And the gospel is this. The gospel is, I have God's seal of approval, and I'm giving it to you. You are acceptable. Where you are, who you are, where you've been, No matter what, that's got to give you boldness. It's going to humble you on one hand because you realize you did nothing. You did nothing. You brought nothing to the table. And yet, it's going to give you amazing boldness because if God gave it to you, it's sealed. He says it's the seal of approval. When the king gives a seal, it is forever. That's amazing. That's grace. Now, we got the what. That's the miracle. The power of God, sufficient in the insufficiency. We have the why. He teaches about it. That power is to show us that we can be satisfied utterly in Christ. How are you satisfied? How do we take of the bread? How do you eat it so that we can have this confidence, so we can have this richness in our lives? Because most of us, we don't feel very rich on a day-to-day basis. So I have some applications here. Five very quick applications so we can meditate as we go home and think about it throughout the week. One, you can't know God's power. You can't know God's power until you see how powerless you really are. Look at the disciples' response. Jesus says, 5,000 people, how do we feed them? The disciples look at them after they've performed miracles. They just got back from performing all these miracles. They say, we can't. You have to save up eight months' wages to feed these guys for each person to even just have one bite. What are you talking about? They're looking in themselves and looking at the extent of what they can do in their circumstances. They've assessed the problems. They're like consultants. They're surveying the land. They're saying, this is impossible. We can't do this. And what does Jesus do? If you think about it this way, if you start to think, you know you're becoming wiser when at one point in your life you thought you could take over the world. And you realize now, day by day, how powerless you are 
how weak you are. How utter, no matter how hard you, this is not at your worst, even at your best. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7, he goes on this huge discourse about his life and his sinfulness. This is him at the spiritual peak of his ministry. And he says, I do what I shouldn't do. I don't do what I should do. Who can rescue me from this body of death? That's what he says. That's him at his best. That's him at his peak. You start to develop wisdom where you realize that you're becoming wise when you realize how powerless you are. What does Jesus say here? What must we do? Everyone's asking, what do we do to have this spread? Jesus says, believe. In other words, there's nothing you can do. If you have to try to believe, you don't believe. If you have to work to believe, you don't believe. When I talk to somebody and they say, well, I'm living the Christian life and it's tri- I'm trying. I'm trying to live the Christian life. I know. They don't believe. Because the, whole, the very essence of the faith, of the gospel is this. It wouldn't be the gospel if you have to try. You can't try. You're compelled. You're melted. If you, if you face the hammer of God, And out of guilt, you're working and you're working and you're working. That's not going to produce any joy in your life, even if you're successful. Because it doesn't last. It's going to corrode your soul. You're going to get bitter. You're going to get disappointed. You're going to feel like God owes me and he disappointed me because I worked hard. Sometimes I succeeded. He didn't pay me back. It's going to be oppressive. It's going to be oppressive. Secondly, well, what is the one requirement, right? The one requirement then if you are going to recognize how powerless we are, the one requirement we have is to recognize that we are hungry, utterly hungry. What does it mean? You have to put down a lot. You have to throw down your pride to come up to some, no matter how wealthy you are, how good looking you are, how good you've been in your life. If you're not hungry, you don't get fed. You don't get food. Secondly, uh, you can't even go to the Lord yourself. You can't even approach You can't get this bread on your own. So on one hand, you have to recognize how powerless you are. Number two, the other part of it is, he says, you can't even get this on your own. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. Verse 44, he says, no one can come to me. No one can come to the Father. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him in. The Greek word here for drawing you in is not, you know, God gives, throws out a cane and he slowly reels you in. That's not what he's talking about here. This is the image of a person who doesn't want to go to jail and a jailer is dragging him into prison. He says, you can't come to the Father unless I literally drag you to him. Do you feel resistant at times in your life? Do you feel like you're sometimes, you know you're rebelling? You know, there are times in our lives when, you know, we don't realize we're doing something wrong sometimes, but there are times when we know. Like, for instance, you know you should forgive, but you don't want to because you're so angry. Sometimes it feels more comfortable being angry. Or you know you should give, but it feels, it it threatens your security. It threatens all that you've worked for, and you don't want to give. Sometimes you know you should help some people, but you don't want to help because you're tired. It threatens your comfort. Jesus is saying here, I'm going to drag you. In other words, if you're resistant right now, God could be. If you just take a moment and think about it, the Spirit is working in your life. The very nature of you recognizing that you're being resistant means that God is working in your life. Why? Because you're realizing, I'm, at my best, I'm still powerless to generate any good on my own. The Spirit is dragging me. No one wants to go to jail. The Spirit has to drag you. You have to be dragged into it. Coming to Christ, we think a lot of times we're eating poison. Jesus says, I'm the bread. We think we're taking poison. When it's actually medicine, it's actually going to heal you, but we think it's going to corrode us. It means that Jesus is ever-present and still holds you so secure that he would force this stuff sometimes down. You, you don't want to take you don't want to take it. You feel like you're gonna spit it up and yet it starts to heal you. Jesus says, just take me in. Just take me in. Thirdly, put everything in your in his hands. Everything you've got. It doesn't mean, you know, the, the rich man in Mark chapter 10 says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, Go and follow all the commandments. That's basically essentially what he says. And the guy says, I've done all that. You asked me to live a good life, I've lived a very good life. Jesus says, okay. First, he loves him. 
He has tremendous compassion on this man. Then he says, you know what? Go sell everything you've got. Sell it to the poor. Then follow me. And the rich man, it says in the Bible in Mark chapter 10, rich man literally went away sad, sorrowful, as if someone had died because he had great wealth. In this passage, what it's saying, when you put everything in his hands, what it's saying is if, you put, if you're putting a lot of stock in your wealth, you've got to give it up. Give up putting stock in your wealth. You think your status is going to give you satisfaction? Jesus is saying, give up putting stock in your status. It doesn't say become low status. It doesn't say become poor. In some sense, you are. Why? Because you're saying these things will no longer, I've realized these things will no longer satisfy me the way I thought it would because I've experienced the disappointment of putting stock in these things in my life. You think that finding the perfect wife or finding the perfect husband is going to give you the perfect life? Is going to give you Zoe? You've got to stop putting stock in those things. Surrender. The boy gave him a lunch. He actually didn't surrender it. It actually said that Andrew presented the boy to Jesus and said, here's a boy with a lunch. Jesus took it from him and fed the world. Stop putting stock. Surrender. Give these things up. We think that putting, you know, everything in our hands to give us the quality of life is going to increase our options, increase our potential, increase our joy, increase the possibilities in our life when actually the only source of possibility and joy and potential in life is Jesus, the bread himself. And that's why he says, take me in. Everything else is going to make us hungrier. Jesus says, you want to be a fool? Take me in. Are you known for being approachable? Are you known for being forgiving? Are you known for your grace? Are you known to be a humble person, to be a person of prayer, a person of surrender? Are you known to be a student of the word, student of the Bible? You know, if these questions actually scare you, then it means you doubt or you fear that God can change you. You doubt or you fear that God can transform you because you think, and and it's an insult to the Lord. You know why? Because what you're saying is his grace isn't sufficient for me. God can change everybody in the world, but he can't change me. I'm too bad, I'm too sinful, I'm too guilty, or I'm too good. I've done too much good in my life. I don't need this. You either doubt that Jesus can change you, or you fear that Jesus will change you. Fourth, the bread has to be consumed. It has to be broken. The child, this boy, is a microcosm of everything that Jesus will do. For the boy, the lunch was pretty much taken away from him. In one instance, the child became hungrier for a moment, right? And everybody else got fuller for the moment. This boy uh, was, in some ways, he was broken so that all of us could eat. In a way, right, he got hungrier so that everybody else could get fuller. We ask, you know, why did he do this? Why did Jesus do this? And throughout the lesson, Jesus teaches us. He performs the miracle, then he teaches us. But there is a point on the cross where Jesus then asks, God, why are you doing this? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's no answer. On the cross, Jesus asks the greatest question that he would ask God in his life. My God, my God, why are you doing this? Why have you forsaken me? No answer. No teaching. No explanation. Utter silence. On the cross, Jesus suffered the punishment for our sin. He suffered the brokenness for our sins so that we could be healed, we could be restored, we could be renewed. In Mark chapter 1, it said that heaven literally tore open. The sky tore open and a spirit came down and descended on him like, a, like on Jesus like a dove. And a voice came out from heaven and said, this is my son whom I love. On the cross, the sky tore open. A storm was brewing. And instead of the spirit descending on Jesus like a dove, it departed from him. And Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the why. He cries out. He says, I've been forsaken. Why? The miracle. The miracle of the cross is for you. The miracle of the cross is for me. Jesus, the bread of life, was broken on the cross so that we could be full. Jesus was consumed. Jesus was broken so that we could be renewed, we could be made whole, so that the dissonant can become consonant, so that the disintegrated 
so that those, the objects of wrath, the object of punishment, could be blessed, could be made whole. Jesus was enslaved on the cross so that we could be liberated, we could be set free. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he was saying was this, my satisfaction has run completely dry. I'm not just physically in pain. I'm not just suffering the nails. I'm not just suffering the crown on my head. I'm not just emotionally in pain. My friends have left me. Everyone who I love has abandoned me. Everyone's throwing insults at me. He's saying these things are nothing compared to the fact that my worship, the thing, my source of life, my source of potential, my source of joy, my worship, what I've surrounded my entire life around, has utterly turned around and has rejected me, put me aside. And now my life is wasting away. I'm corroding and I'm hungry. He says, my God, why? I'm hungry. My source of validation has departed from me, rejected me. I'm in utter brokenness. The bread is to be consumed. That's why it has to be Jesus. That's why Jesus says, I am the bread of life. All other breads consume you. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. You can do nothing. You have to do nothing to take it in. Just take it in. And you will have life for your souls. Jesus on the cross says, I I have no more abundance. I'm richly cursed so that you will be richly blessed. I'm wasting away. All other forms of satisfaction, you're going to end up hungry. The hunger that Christ felt on the cross is what we feel when we're deeply dissatisfied. We're looking for the deep quality of life that, comes, that can only come through the gospel who sacrificed utter satisfaction on the cross, fellowship with his Father so that you can have it. Give to the Lord what little you've got. Give to the Lord everything you've got and you will experience joy. Give to the Lord your pauper's lunch and you will have a feast. Verse 28 to 32, the Jews, they didn't get it. They kept questioning him. They says, what must we do to earn it? What must we do to work for it? They're missing the point. They're missing the point. And that leads to the last point, the last application. The bread not only has to be broken, not only has to be consumed, you have to eat it. It takes no work to digest. When you're digesting food, you know, once it's been broken and once you consume it, what happens? oxidative powers are taking place in your body, right? A lot of physiological reactions are taking place so that it generates power. The bread just generates power in your life. You're able to have physical activity. In the same way, the bread has to be taken of him. Will you take in? Will you savor savor the richness of Jesus? Will you eat of Christ and savor the goodness of who God is in Christ? Will you do that? All of him, not just the blessing, but the call as well. Everything about who Jesus is. Will you do that? In verse 35, he says, come to me. He says, come to me. He says, in verse 35, he says, believe in me and you will have life. Take him in. In other words, Christ's relationship with you has to be deeply personal. It can't be a mechanical thing. You know, you can do all those things in your life, but you'll never enjoy life, the quality and the richness of who Jesus is if you're just doing it mechanically. You have to, on one hand, you can't do anything about it. The Spirit has to draw you in. Right now, if you're feeling resistant, you know what that is? The very fact that you know that you're being resistant, there's a battle going on in your heart, and a Spirit is working, and it's active. Will you connect with that? And take Him in? No relationship ever is easy, you know? Jesus says, I'm the bread, you gotta take me in. It means that sometimes the things that He says you have to chew on it for a while before you digest. You have to suck on it like a lollipop, like hard candy. You don't just take it and just swallow it. Some kids do, and it causes lots of problems, right? You have to suck on it for a while before you taste the sweetness of everything, the goodness of everything. Sometimes you suck on it, and there's bubble gum in the middle. It's good. It's tasty. Initially, it's really, really hard. It's really hard. You ever been in a relationship where you always agree with somebody? You ever been in a relationship where a deep relationship, there's no such thing as a deep relationship where everybody always just agrees with each other. You ever been in a, if you've ever been in a marriage, if, you, if you're married, if you're married in your life, what happens? Do you always agree with your spouse? You never agree with your spouse. It doesn't ever work that way. 
The only way that you can change is through disagreement. You have to wrestle. You have to argue with God. Argue with Jesus. That's what it means to take him in. Let it work in you. Let it work in you. Otherwise, you'll never change. You'll never grow. You'll never mature. Just like a marriage. Your marriage will never grow if you're always just agreeing with one another. Some things that Jesus says will be very, very hard to swallow. In fact, we have a series coming up in a few months that we're going to touch on all the difficult things that Jesus ever said. And we're going to unpack those things. Have you ever asked the Lord to change you in your circumstance because your circumstance is difficult? Ask Jesus to change you. You know, ask Jesus to work in you. Ask Jesus for help in change, in transformation. Rules aren't going to change you. A lot of times we say, what must we do? God, what must I do? The rules are never going to change you. It's going to, in fact, it's never going to satisfy you. It's never going to grow you. If you love the Lord, your relationship with the Lord has to be deeply personal, intense and personal, open. Come to Jesus. I'm going to read again our call to worship, Isaiah 55. Read it in this light, verses 1 to 2. This is an invitation for us as we respond in faith and as we sing. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, you're destitute, you're poor, recognize how powerless you are. He says, come, buy and eat. You have credit. It's all been paid for. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me. You know, in the Old Testament, whenever you see those words doubled like that, the doubled like that, listen, listen, he's not just saying, listen, listen, do you hear me? He's saying with emotional content, he's weeping, he's begging, he's saying, listen, listen, my God, my God. Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Become promiscuous with your satisfaction in him. Become promiscuous with your surrender to him. Become stingy with your satisfaction towards other things in your life. Become stingy with your giving of yourself to other worldly things in your life that you think will promise satisfaction but utterly leaves you destitute. That's the key. Come to Christ. Delight in him. Your soul is going to delight in the richest affair. Let's pray.